Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Well, we have a real treat for you tonight. We have author Craig Unger. Craig Unger is the author of five books on the Republican Party's assault on democracy, three of which were New York Times bestsellers. He covered national security and the Middle East for Vanity Fair magazine for 15 years. He's written for Esquire, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and many other publications. His most recent book, and the one we're going to talk about tonight, is American Compromise, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. Listeners, the book was a real page turner. I read it in a very short time. I couldn't put it down. I read it when I woke up. I read it when I went to sleep. Uh, I really recommend American Compromise by Craig Unger. It's a really good take on Donald Trump and the Russian connection. Craig, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on the show because you actually came into you know my life through a friendship, not through a, a political connection. And when I got your book and read your book, American Compromise, I was almost hallucinating because for years now, and maybe seven or eight years, I've been like really worried about this exact phenomenon going on, Russian disinformation. And then of course, in the uh, 2016 election of Donald Trump, it all came out. What was the plan of the Russian disinformation? This week has been a historic week. Tonight, we have the trials, the Senate committee reporting and talking about the insurrection and revealing what happened on the 6th of January. Last week we or so, we wrapped up the uh, Sussman-Durham trial uh, that found that, you know, there was no uh, collusion between uh, Sussman trying to, you know, uh, implicate falsely the Alpha Bank. And you've written all about this. I mean, it was like I could not believe that you had covered every single one of these elements. So I guess I have to start and ask you, where did you first come up with the idea? Where did it first dawn on you that the Russians, in fact, had a disinformation campaign aimed at America? How long ago? And then how did Trump come into this picture? Well, first of all, I've done five books on the Republican Party's assault on democracy. So I was rather dubious going into it. I must confess, I was not at all a Russia expert. I am not a Russia expert. But uh, as soon as Trump was elected, I, w- I was really astonished by it. And I wanted to drill down into it. And among other things, I started to look into his ties into organized crime to the Russian mafia. It really doesn't take a genius to trace this. And even the FBI documents, which are available online, would show how Trump was laundering money for the Russian mafia as early as 1984. So I wrote about that in the previous book, in House of Trump, House of Putin, which came I did just after Trump was elected. And uh, there was much, much more, and I, I kept going with it. And, and in his most recent book, I mean, one of the things that really attracted me was the idea that Trump was a Russian asset. Uh, that's something that had been asserted by John Brennan, the former head of the CIA, right. Mike Morrell, James Clapper, the top intelligence officials in the United States. But no one had bothered to drill down and say, how did that happen? Was it really true? I think they presented it just merely as a their intelligence assessments. But I wanted to do the narrative of how that happened and how it began. And I traced it all the way back to 1980. 
And that was the beginning of real estate loans when he needed money, when he was insolvent and, and he needed cash and they were starting to supply that cash. Is that the beginning of it? Well, that was part of it, but it really goes back to Trump's first genuine success was the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is adjacent to Grand Central Station. He was developing this in the late 70s. I think it opened in 79 or 80. And like any big hotel, it needed lots of TV sets. So where right. is Trump going to get them? And it turns out he got them from an electronic store called the Joy Ludd store, which was owned by a, a man named Semyon Kislin, who's still around. And Kislin, as I found out, according to one of my my sources in the KGB, uh, a man named Yuri Schwitz, Kislin was a so-called spotter agent for the KGB. That is, he was tasked with bringing in new assets or agents who could be recruited by the KGB. So he's in, in selling hundreds of TV sets to Donald Trump, at a, presumably at a bargain basement price, he was sort of opening the door. And after that, a number of other people from the KGB began meeting with Trump and they flew him to, to Moscow in 1987 for his first trip to the, the Soviet Union. Okay, so here we are uh, early on, a very interesting, you know, rather obscure, but interesting pattern that he do establish in the book of, you know, buying things and, and borrowing money from, from Russian sources that will benefit and, and, and help him. Uh, and then he really goes into, um, you go into um, the laundering of money via purchasing condominiums in, in, in many of his units at, at prices that didn't make any sense but the Russians didn't really care. And this was the beginning of it. And I think at one point in the book, you talk about his son saying, we don't need any money from Wall Street. We don't need any bond money. We don't real, need any real estate uh, money. We, we can get all the money we want from the Russians. Is that not true? Absolutely. The money laundering, as far as I could tell, started around 1984 when a man named David Bogdan went to Trump Tower. He met with Donald Trump in person and he put down... Uh, about $6 million in cash. That's uh, over $20, $25 million in today's dollars. And he said, I'll take five condos. Now, so the transaction proceeded. And what you see in these transactions is one, they are all cash transactions. And two, they generally go to limited liability corporations or other corporations in which the beneficial owner is anonymous. Right. According to a BuzzFeed investigation, Trump sold over 1,300 condos right. under those conditions. Uh, that's a lot of laundering. That's a lot. Where was Alpha Bank in this? This is what's really fascinating. You know, the Durham investigation and the Durham indictment of Sussman was about Alpha Bank. And Sussman went and falsely claimed that he found secret communications between Alpha Bank and the Trump campaign. And uh, Durham asserted that's not true. The jury said, uh, it, in fact... Um, it was true. He went there just to, you know, help the FBI out. There was a potential for this. So, but you early on indicated that the Alpha Bank was, in fact, you know, part and parcel of the money laundering system, you know, that Trump did. Why wouldn't Durham know that? Why wouldn't Durham have known that there was a long relationship between Alpha Bank and Trump and the Trump Organization? It seems to me that he's hanging this on one tiny little infinitesimal possibility, but. In reality, there was a prima facie relationship between Alpha Bank. What's with that? 
well, well, first to give some credit where it's due, Franklin Ford did some wonderful reporting on that in the Atlantic. But, but I think the larger answer to your question is that to me, the Durham investigation, I mean, this is a long tradition the Republicans have. There was a wonderful little line in the New Yorker recently, Andy Borowitz did that, as you may know, that Fox News is not going to carry the hearings live. Yeah. And in the New Yorker, Andy Borowitz said that they'll, they'll probably be running reruns of the Benghazi hearings. <laughs> I think that hints at a much larger truth, which is the Republicans learned a lot from Watergate, and they learned how to use prosecutions as political weapons. And yeah. I, I think the whole Durham investigation, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 if you look at once William Barr became Attorney General, a lot of the press was misled by him, and they thought, oh well, we got rid of the racist Jeff Sessions. This guy will be much better. In fact. Barr has a long history as a really hard line authoritarian. Yeah. And, and he really covered up a lot of the uh, investigations back uh, during Iran-Contra. Remember, he was attorney general yeah. during the administration of George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr. Yeah. And, and he was very much a, a hardliner back then. He was in the office of legal counsel and he was promoting the whole idea of the unitary executive, which gives enormous powers to the presidency. And, and I think the fact is that Bush Sr. really was not an authoritarian in the way that Trump has become. And so Barr didn't get very far with that. But when, when Trump came around, Barr was there to clean up all the messes, to put out a false narrative. And the Durham right. investigation was very much part of that. Okay. I completely concur with that. And I, I, that, that's been my sense of this from day one when he doctored the Mueller report and, and gave false testimony regarding the, the import of the Mueller report. It's obvious that um, the Russians are happy to recruit media barons. They're happy to sow disinformation by having compromised media barons do their bidding, correct? Right. And I think Ma Maxwell was really a a real Russian asset. I mean, I, there, you know, there's these sort of interesting larger than life figures. And Maxwell was someone who could walk into the office of uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and just make himself at home and, and start talking without any introduction. He brushed aside all protocols. There's some wonderful diaries from uh, some of Gorbachev's aides. They were profoundly irritated at Maxwell. And Maxwell could do this with every country in the world. I mean, he, he was he was trading favors. He did right. the same with Israeli intelligence. Uh, he was very much an Israeli operative, but he was also a, a Russian operative at various times. Right. Okay. It, if you were in Russia and you sat down and you were and you planned to destroy the United States and create Basically, uh, uh, what we're talking about now, like a civil war, creating violence, creating a, a complete disregard for the institutions. Every one of the the, the uh, ongoing um, hostilities between the red states and the blue states over culture wars, lack of agreement over infrastructure bills, just what we see in front of us now, a divided, weakened, horribly polarized America. If you were going to sit down and, and fulfill a wish list, would you not fund Rupert Murdoch at every level from the beginning? Would you not wish for a Rupert Murdoch and a Fox News and a Roger Ailes to create 
the dissension and the distrust in America? Could they have asked for anything more than than Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ailes and Fox News? Right. Fox News is very much uh, part of all this. Absolutely. I mean, that's what the the whole point of what that's I what I believe since day one. Yeah. I, I have believed since day one that Rupert Murdoch and Fox News have a desire to destroy America. They don't want to see it succeed. And they're going to do everything that they can to create the polarization and the violence and the ugliness that this culture now, political culture now has going on for. Well, well, if you go way back to the beginning with Fox News, Roger Ailes, who was the founder, of course, he was in the Nixon administration and he crafted the, the plans for Fox News back then. And the original name for the network was GOP TV. So the the idea that it's fair and balanced yes. is ludicrous from the start. And if you see Tucker Carlson today, who I, I think is surpassing Hannity in a, in a certain way. and Oh, totally. For, for all I know, maybe uh, running for president. And Tucker Carlson's been going to Hungary. He was broadcasting from Budapest. He's been uh, lionizing Viktor Orban, who, of course, is... Uh, I know, he's our, he's our Tokyo Rose. Exactly. You know, I think he's a traitor, to be honest. Yes. Okay. So here we have a a full on establishment of a media company, um, a a politician, a a president, now president, was president of the United States that don't seem to have America's best interests. Let's put it that way at, at, at heart, seem to have some other interests at heart. Why? would the GOP, why would a political party that used to be the most patriotic, full of, you know, of, of intelligent Brahmins, whether you like them or not, as Bush you mentioned, Rockefeller you mentioned, Eisenhower, you, you know, there were dozens and dozens of intelligent, brilliant Republicans. They disagreed at times with Democrats, but they were both on the same page that America had um, certain needs and goals. Why would one of these parties bail on that and do everything they can to what any impartial observer would have to say is a destructive act on a regular basis, including denying that there was an insur- a violent insurrection that people died in to take over the United States, deny Joe Biden the legitimate election. And now they're ripping the country apart with a false narrative that uh, you have a stolen election. And where does it show up? Well, it shows up in the assassinated judge in Michigan who was zip tied and murdered. It showed up in the in the person that just tried to commit violence upon uh, Kavanaugh. So now we've created like, you know, almost like the Red Brigades or uh, Daniel Cohn Bryant in Germany, a violent potential, uh, you know, revolutionary uh, right and left. Um, That's what Russia wanted. This is something I wrote about in Talking Points memo called Putin got what he wanted, chaos. So we've got a lot of chaos going on right now, violent chaos now. We've got murders and assassinations happening here in America. Why would the Republican Party want to continue down this road? It's not very good for business, not very good for, you know, selling anything. I mean, who wants to live in a society as 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 polarized as ours? Where does they where do they benefit from this? Well, I, I think you have to go back to the 60s and, and when Lyndon Johnson was president and we had the uh, Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. I mean, that was a a really gutsy thing for Lyndon Johnson to do. But what it meant was that at that time, the Southern Democrats were the Dixiecrats. They were, remember, go back to the Civil War. The Republicans were the good guys. That was Abraham Lincoln, was a Republican. He was the father of the Republican Party. The big slavery faction were the Democrats. And that remained the case in the South 
right up through the 60s. And suddenly when those civil rights bills were passed, uh, all those Dixiecrats became Republicans. And it, it's sort of a cliche now, but when you look at the electoral map and you see the red states and the blue states, well, the red states, gee, that looks familiar. That looks like the Confederate States of America. Yeah. And, and I think what's happened is uh, the Republican Party today is essentially the Confederacy 2.0. <laughs> and if you look at, I, yeah. I don't know if you remember the, yes. the, the famous Republican uh, political consultant, Lee Atwater. Oh, very well. Remember Lee Val, or brilliant, brilliant mind, evil and, and, and smart and intelligent, died very early of brain cancer. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, on his deathbed, he had this wonderful quote. He said, look, back in the old days, when he started out in the 50s and 60s to win in the South, he said, all you had to do was shout. And then he said the N word three yeah. times and that would get you elected. He said, but as time went on, you had to be a little more polite and talk about forced bushing or various economic issues that might help rich whites and not so much and, and would probably hurt, relatively speaking, poor blacks and on and on like that. So what was slavery, you know, I, I think America is, was born with a lie in a way that all men are created equal. And when Thomas Jefferson wrote that, well, he, he had a black woman in the background who had uh, given birth to six of his children. He didn't have any rights whatsoever. So, so if you take that, take that premise that this is the Confederacy 2.0, they don't want to be part of America. They want to rip it apart as much as they can and have it ha have their section of the country with no abortion and and no voting rights. You know, they want to roll back America to to the Confederacy. That's a very fascinating, intellectually chewable idea that that I didn't know was going to come out of here in this conversation. And the compromise part is the Russians are really happy that that's the case. They're rubbing their hands in well, they, Moscow. They, you know, I think even well, I don't think people tie everything together like, like Uvalde doesn't. You wouldn't think of any Russian angle to that off the top of your head, except that the NRA is, is funded in a very large measure by Russians. And that's in the Senate Banking Committee report as a report on that. Or you see people like Maria Butina, who is sort of a yes. Russian honey trap, palling yep. around with Wayne LaPierre. I mean, what, what is that going on? So, so the, the, the Russians know about all that, and they want to fuel the NRA. They, they love to fuel the, these mass killings. That, that, that's good business for them. It helps divide the country. And I think even something like Uvalde may help the Republicans uh, because it stokes fear, it stokes incivility and violence, and that's, uh, you know, that helps the Republicans. In their goal to what? Create a... To uh, win. To create a fascist dictatorship, to stop the democratic process, to seize the government by force like... It, uh, well, they are trying to seize it by force. And I know. I, you know, and we saw that on January 6th. That's what January 6th is about. Let's just say they succeed. They do all this. They win elections. They reelect Trump. The Republicans just, you know, wipe the floor with the Democrats in the in the midterms and then in the presidential race in 2024. The next day, do they form an alliance with Russia and cancel NATO? 
I mean, is this really what's you know behind well, it? Like they're gonna you know, they're gonna hold that Russia's hand up with a, like a victory and you know and walk around the world going, we did it, we did it, we did it. Now you're our best friend. Let's let's stop NATO. Let's let, enslave the Ukraine. We, where does this go with, with Russia? Well, 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 Trump had had nearly completely wounded NATO. I mean, what's remarkable about the Ukrainian war, the Ukraine war, is that Biden was able to pull NATO together. And and that it, it worked together in a in a such united fashion. I, I, Putin was shocked by that. No one expected that. I didn't expect that. Uh, but the the invasion of Ukraine did unite NATO. I think Biden has handled that part of things very very well. Well, it also uh, seems to have united the country. I mean, the, the the Senate and the House did pass you know a forty billion dollar arms package for Ukraine and it sailed through with just a few lunatics. It sailed through, it, you know, so so a $40 billion aid, aid package to Ukraine did sail through. So are the Republicans, did the Ukraine wake up Republicans to the idea that, um, you know, Russia isn't this uh, wonderful force, but is a force of malevolence? Is there a is there a reevaluation here of Trump and 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 uh, and and the Republican Party's relationship with Russia? Did it backfire? Uh, no, I look at what Trump did during his last years in office. His I think it was his second impeachment. I'm getting an impeachment right. done. Uh, but his so-called perfect phone call with Zelensky, you know, and look at Manafort's role in this. I yes. mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. Paul Manafort, who was his campaign manager, was really Putin's man. He got $75 million from the Russians. I mean, this is all in, in the various investigations. Yes. He was the man behind President Yanukovych, who is Putin's puppet in Ukraine. And who was forced out, by the way, by the Ukrainian people. And, when, you know, he was all set. Uh, he, he was kind of, it was a dicey position for him to have politically. Historically, the Republicans had always been tough on Russia. And that they initially had a strong plank in uh, supporting Ukraine. But, of course, uh, Trump and Manafort's team weakened it enormously. So there's no question they were ba they were kowtowing to what Putin's desires. And I think that would happen again. And I, I can't speak for every other congressman and so forth, Republican congressman, uh, but they vote for whatever they think will get them reelected. And, and, and to be honest, most, you know, I, I, I think the people of Idaho or wherever may not care so much about Ukraine. They don't. Uh, and th that's not going to be a make it or break it vote. Interesting. One of the most influential people that got Trump elected, and he's been constantly in the news, he never stops. He's such a such a news hound, obviously, you know, is Steve Bannon. OK, he's just doesn't give up. His face is uh, in the uh, media every every week with some new charge or new issue. You know, he's suing this person, he's suing that person, he's threatening this, he's threatening that, et cetera, et cetera. And he's been constantly compared to Rasputin, which was which is interesting. You know, the the, the, the czar's muse that uh, was so crazy that uh, basically everybody thinks that the Russian Revolution happened because of, you know, the, the irrationality of, of Rasputin. And Trump relied on Banyan and, and his uh, nationalistic traits and all his, his, his desires. And I've spoken many, many times about this because I'm fascinated because Banyan to me is, is an anarchist. I mean, every one of his statements is about destroying this, ripping up this, ending this, having this collapse, blowing this up. 
Um, and the anarchists were a really, really powerful movement in Russia uh, way before the revolution in 1917. You know, they were a powerful element going back to the later part of the 19th century in Russia. So where does Banyan and, and, and his, his anarchistic blow it up trends, traits come from? And how does that fit into the, the, the Trump-Russian narrative? I mean, it, it can't be a coincidence that, that Trump and Banyan are, are, are buddies and have the same beliefs. Well, I, to be honest, I don't know what Bannon's relationship is with Trump right now because they've had fallings out and gotten back together. I'm not sure I, I have a, a good answer to that question. My view is that Trump fell into Russia's hands because they were he was banking money out of them. He was laundering money from them. Uh, they were uh, feeding his ego when they brought him to Russia in 87. Uh, they encouraged him to run for president as long ago as 87. And he started doing his their bidding because it, it was fun and he was getting making money. Um, Bannon came along much, much later. And it was true. He, he was terrifically influential with with Trump uh, during that campaign. And I think he played a big role in helping Trump uh, win in 2016. I do too, big role. But I'm not sure what the relationship is right now. But how does his, how does his like nihilistic sense of like destroying everything fit in with what the Russians want? If you were Putin in the, in the KGB and the foreign service that was in, invested in destroying America. Is this yet another angle to open up this like, let's blow everything up. Let, let's, you know, let's create chaos. Is that part of the, the overall strategy? Well, there is a similarity, I think, between Putin and Russia and what we see going on in the Republican Party with it, which is becoming increasingly cult-like, whether it's QAnon, the right. Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. I mean, these are real cults and the Proud Boys have taken over the political apparatus in Florida. So they have real influence. And I think we'll see in these hearings about January 6th that they've had a, a, a vital role in all of that in the January 6th insurrection. And we also see it in they're being fueled by Russian trolls and, and cyber attackers in Facebook. And one of the most distressing things I think that's happened with the, this rise of uh, anarchy or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I cult like, you know, the level of insanity in the Republican Party, both in its depth and its breadth is, is quite extraordinary. And I, I think that is fueled uh, to a significant degree by by Russia and, and all its trolls. And they feed it through Facebook. And, and one of the things I find so disturbing is, is that places like Facebook profit off of that and allow it to be promoted. And you have Mark Zuckerberg making billions of dollars by pushing Russian propaganda. Give me an example of what their current propaganda push is. What, what's on Facebook? I don't go on Facebook. I would never in my life get one bit of news or information from Facebook. It's beyond absurd to me. 
Uh, I've written about that too. So, but I'm so I'm really curious. What narrative are the, are the Russians using on the, with their troll farms on Facebook and the Republican Party? What are they saying? Well, I I don't go to Facebook either. But you, you have this stuff. You know, all these r- rumors. I mean, I I thought it was a funny joke when I first heard it. And this goes back to when Trump first won. There was a pizza parlor in Washington oh, that the, okay. City with Got the, it. where they right. shot pedophiles. Yeah, in the yeah. Basement, the place to okay. the basement. I mean, it was ridiculous. But there are these ridiculous rumors going around uh, with Uvalde, for example, uh, one of the memes on on Twitter going around, the right wingers are saying that Uvalde was a false flag oh, yeah, operation. They, they always do. They did this after Sandy Hook. This is what Alex Jackson owes $100 million to the parents and he's going to go bankrupt. They always say this. They said all the all the insurrectionists were, were false flags. That's just standard stuff, I guess. You know, the Russians do that every day. The Russians have claimed that the Ukrainians killed their own soldiers, raped their own women, blew up their own hospitals. I mean, this really is, you know, standard Russian kind of, you know, Turn turn it on their heads, but Goebbels really invented that one when he when he you know stood up there and, and said if the Jews want war you know he right. blamed well, entire yeah, World I War Two on the Jews you know I mean it's just that's what that's what people do you know the Russians do this and so it's just amplified by Facebook. Okay, aside from aside from this, the biggest issue right now and the one we're going to you know watch the hearings tonight about is the contested election. This really does get to the heart of the American the American um, decline. If, if you don't have fair elections, why are you in America? This is like the one place in the world, supposedly, that we actually had clean, fair elections and people won and lost based on the popular vote and the merit. Of their of their arguments, Trump could not wreak more havoc on on America than to start this idea that the elections are fake. And of course, when his candidates win, there's no question that they weren't fake. You know, if you win by 900 votes in Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, you know, you in fact really won that election. There was no fraud. But if the other guy won by 900 votes, they were cooked up. So this is going to make every single person in the United States insane. I mean, it's going to be you know d- destroy the entire collective belief that we can have a free and fair election. Sounds to me like the Russians gain on that one. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, the Republicans, the, the Russians love the Republican Party. They, they, I mean, I call it Putin's party. There's no question about it. I mean, you, whether you're looking at Ukraine or right. uh, the destruction of NATO, disabling NATO, the, you know, they uh, want to carry out uh, Putin's fondest, greatest dreams. Where does this end up? Is Trump going to be indicted in any one of a number of jurisdictions that, that he's committed crimes in, potentially committed crimes in, definitely committed crimes in, however you want to put it? Is he uh, not going to get the nomination from his party? Is there going to be some scandal that's going to come out that's just even too big for him? Is uh, Ron DeSantis going to push him aside with Mike Pence or something like that? Is there an exit strategy for, for the uh, compromise? I think things are so volatile that I'm, I'm very wary of making predictions. But I will say one thing is if if the Republican let, let's before we get four years ahead, uh, let's look to November. Yeah. And if the Republicans take over the House, I would be shocked if they didn't immediately impeach Joe Biden. Uh-huh. And so that means starting in January, uh, there'll be all whether it's Hunter Biden's laptop or what they'll find something. Sure. And they'll have the majority of the House will be enough and they will vote on mass to uh, to uh, indict um, and impeach uh, Joe Biden. And it'll take up headlines and all that. And they'll keep him from doing anything uh, for, for the rest of his term. So I think that's very scary right there. 
And that could end up positioning him well to win in 2024, whether it's Donald Trump, who who I think he who may, he may be get the nomination. He could be indicted, but nothing has happened yet. And I'm really disappointed the Justice Department had done anything. And I'm disappointed by the New York DA not prosecuting him. And I, I think we have to have more oversight. And, and we've just failed at that enormously. And the Democrats have to play hardball. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm also concerned just on the practical level of Biden's age. Oh, we, we, can, we don't have to go there. That's a real issue. He, that would be a very bad thing for him to run again based on his age. It, it, well, it would not. And, and, and I frankly think Kamala Harris is not a strong candidate. No. So, so then we, we agree on that say, completely. A lot of good Democrats feel the same way. So what do you what what's the next step? And uh, I I can put forth potential scenarios, but I have no idea. I, I don't think anyone really does. And and what we are getting to is a point where um, the Democrats just have to be fight back really really hard. We need fighting Democrats. Um, and uh, going soft is. You know, I, I think Biden's done a, a, a very good job with what he has. But what's scary is when you see now we control both houses of Congress and the White House, and we're still not able to really, really run this country with a mandate at all. No, the margins are just too slim. I mean, they're, they're absurd. One man, Joe Manchin or something is, you know, is basically uh, able to determine the domestic policy of the United States. And then, you know, you have dupes and, and fools you know, like Susan Collins and, and, you know, other, you know, supposedly, you know, sane people voting for, you know, um, Federalist Society judges thinking that they're going to behave themselves and follow the rule of law. But of course, you know, they're going to follow their Christian agenda uh, up and down their line. Let's get back to compromise for a minute. We just uh, took a little bit of a, a little bit of diversion. Is the solution to the proof in your book legal, electoral? The real scandal is what is legal. So much Right. Of what they do is legal. And, and the Mueller investigation was a failure in large part because it should have been a counterintelligence investigation. Instead, it was just a criminal investigation. And the difference is you can spy. You can be a spy and be perfectly legal. And I, I take the example of Donald Trump Jr., who mm -hmm. in October of 2016, just before the, the presidential election, gave a speech in France. He was paid $50,000 or more. Uh, uh, and all of that's legal, of course. But the, the think tank before who, who paid him in France happened to be a, Rus a front for Russian intelligence. And they happened to give him talking points of everything Putin and Sergei Lavrov wanted to do, wanted Trump to do in the Middle East. And uh, he happened to pass it on to his father, who, of course, became president and implemented exactly the desires uh, when Putin wanted him to withdraw from Syria, which led to millions and millions of massive bombing, millions and millions yeah. of refugee, who yeah. then flood Europe and yeah. provide uh, the fuel for right-wing anti-immigrant pop populism, authoritarianism. Yeah. And that was a big Putin plan. Uh, there were testimony about it before Congress, long before, before the election. I mean, this is not a, an, uh, I believe it was before the election. So, th and this is what happened. But what I just said was not illegal. 
And we need enormous oversight. The Democrats have been enormously lax in that regard. We've seen subpoenas torn up again and again. It baffles me that people are just able to tear up subpoenas and not honor them without testifying or, or facing well, contempt of court or anything. Some people, there were two arrests. They arrested Navarro, as you know, last week or so, and uh, they've and, and you know they've arrested Banyan for not testifying. So I believe that there is some some at some level there is some teeth to these subpoenas. They're not letting all of them go, correct? Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope they they uh, they they force them as much as possible. But it it's just not clear to me. And I mean, I mean, I and I think people have gotten away with really, really light sentences. If you look at what Paul Manafort did, gee, seventy five million dollars Russian interest to implement policies that are completely antithetical to the United States. Um, Anyone got a, a few months in jail. I mean, nothing, nothing really. Well, he was sentenced um, for a few years, but he was, he was pardoned. Uh, by, I, you know, I, I know, but, t- and, but yeah. some of it was served at home. Yeah, yeah, because of coronavirus. I mean, but yeah. these are real traitors in my view. Right. And, and they're being let off easily. And, and the insurrection itself was uh, an attempted coup d'etat. Totally. We, yeah, that, that's there's, what it was. That, right. Uh, and they want to say the idea of sweeping this under the rug by the Republican Party is is is, is just is beyond belief. This is beyond belief that they so don't I want. Think they, this is one of those battles the Democrats have to fight, fight, fight. And and what one of the things that's disturbing about it, I, I'm old enough to have been riveted by the Watergate hearings 50 years ago. Me too. And but back then you only had three channels and everyone in the country tuned into one of them i know and they all carried it wall to wall to wall to walls 24 7. uh we were drowning it now of course fox news is not going to carry it we have TikTok and a zillion other diversions and people who get their news from uh facebook or twitter are siloed in their particular little bubble and they won't won't get uh, they'll get uh uh, they're not going to get the facts recited, where as we saw them d- dramatically unveiled uh, in real real time in uh, testify testimony before during Watergate. Um, I don't think we're you know so the, the Democrats have to master spectacle, and I, I think it's very difficult to master spectacle in the social media age because what you know it's one thing Trump is good at. Um, you know, yeah. he may say, say something really stupid, and he often does. But you know what? It gets it takes the air out of the room. It takes over the national conversation. It's a distraction, yeah. and all his stupid stupidities on everything for COVID or whatever. You know, I mean, how much airtime was devoted to that? And I mean, it was exceedingly stupid but it distracts from real uh, it, it turns politics into professional wrestling you know it does and, and and it's just theater you know this country isn't grown up enough to uh, put that aside and and deal with serious issues uh-huh. and and i think it's going to face take a crisis more people are alert today than they were five years ago that's for certain but not enough yet, I think. Yeah, and, but ele- and it's going to take Craig, a real crisis. Craig, 11 million more people voted for Trump in 2020 than did, than did in 2016. Okay. 11 million more Americans went to the polls and said, 
we want more, four more years of this. I mean, I know that they lost the popular vote by, uh, I think, six or seven million. I understand that. He lost it before by three million to Hillary Clinton. I understand the difference between the electoral and the popular vote. I know that Biden won, you know, more Americans. But I'm sorry, I can never get past that number. Well, it's a huge part. There's no question. It's a huge, huge part of the country um, that believes in a a fantasy world uh, that, that, uh, you know, where they're where liberals are yes. uh, selling young and now they're going to believe in the, they're going to believe in the fantasy world that Donald Trump could lower gas prices this is if america gets destroyed and democracy goes away and donald trump is reelected and and you know dismantles our society it'll be over gas prices and as if he has anything to do with the price of gas or could possibly lower it. But yet most people will believe that when they say, you know, look at the six dollar gas, that that's what you get for the Democrats. Of course, they're paying that in Europe and in China and everywhere in the world. But you'll never be told that. OK, Craig, I think this your book, American Compromise, really was just I, I just couldn't put it down. So I, I read it, you know, I don't know, in three days because I, I had to wake up and read it and I had to go to sleep and read it. It was just brilliant. Well, but can you. I suggest can I suggest a subtitle to the book? The book is sure. called American Compromise um, by, by Craig Unger. But if I may suggest a subtitle, it would be American Compromise, Democracy on the Ropes. Yeah. Because that's really what you've laid out in your book. Democracy is on the ropes. And Donald Trump is punching away. And Steve Bannon is punching away. And the Republican Party is punching away at the Democratic uh, pinata and whacking it as much as they can to see if they can destroy it and rip it apart and have it all fall out. And I think, you know, like I've been saying about the uh, anarchists, they don't care what comes next because whatever comes next, they think they're going to be part of. They're going to seize some sort of power in the vacuum when they collapse all of our institutions. But that's what I think. And you've made yourself really clear also. Craig, thank you so much for the conversation. I, I can't tell you how how appreciate your insights and thoughts and and how I admire you know the effort that you put into the seven books that you've written and the articles that continually come out and inform us and the intelligence and objectivity that you really bring to uh, political analysis. Um, it, it's exemplary and extraordinary. And uh, you certainly are an advocate for uh, for intelligence and democracy. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I enjoyed it enormously. Listeners, thanks again for tuning into Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.